until quite recently, really quite recently, I uh, tended in teaching to try as much as possible to avoid repeating myself, repeating things that I had said in uh, other talks, other teachings, or presented, and um, uh, partly just because that's a kind of personality style, I guess, in relation to um, creativity and stuff, perhaps, but partly also uh, I felt like it didn't serve the, the, the teaching that the, the, the student, the, the listener, um, especially in the age of recordings, or with a book where you can always go back and, and read again and do your own repetition. And as well as that, I also used to think that um, sometimes it's better not to spell out fully uh, the obvious consequences of of whatever teachings one is presenting. Um, so, for example, in the book I wrote or in other series of teachings, I uh, didn't fully spell out all the consequences, partly because I thought that um, if the listener or reader um, engages and inquires and questions into the material, that actually will... that personal engagement in that way will actually lead to them digesting the material better, understanding it better, assimilating it better, having it available to them better uh, and more fully. Um, but I'm really questioning all that in the last couple of years. Um, so I'm not sure. I think there's a lot of assumptions there and certainly in terms of uh, people engaging. I think that happens in different ways. Um, and it takes a certain amount of confidence to question or even make one's own conclusions from uh, certain things that are presented, etc. So I'm I'm questioning all this and, and revising it very much. Uh, why I'm saying that is because now, at the risk of repeating myself, um, but for the sake of clarity, I'd like to take a little time and explore a little bit the relationship of Eros and the Brahma Viharas, loving kindness, compassion, uh, joy, and equanimity, um, and explore the relationships, the differences there, and also point to uh, the possibility of using Eros and the erotic imaginal in the service of Brahma-Vihara cultivation and practice, or even in actual Brahma-Vihara uh, practice, uh, with metta and compassion, etc. So, already said, um, can we notice with imaginal practice? There's a lot in imaginal practice that's um, not immediately obvious. It's like once we hang out with it and get used to uh, get used to that terrain and that opening, that world, if you like, we start to notice um, certain qualities or aspects, um, uh, characteristics of that world. 
and the relationships there. And one of the things that we've pointed out that, that, that's noticeable there, maybe immediately, maybe very obvious, maybe really much less obvious, and something that sort of, oh yeah, okay, uh, something that dawns on us kind of slowly or gradually or only in time. And that is the presence of love. Within the imaginal, in the imaginal space, there is love. Maybe obvious at first, maybe much less obvious. There is love, so to speak, from ourselves to the imaginal figure. We love imaginal figures. And sometimes, again, this is really not obvious at all, um, but it, it's there in one way or another, in one uh, form or quality of love or another. Uh, so then, and that's another thing we said is the range of kinds of qualities or presentations or uh, flavors of love uh, is is enormously uh, variable. So there's love from self to the imaginal figure, and there's also love from the imaginal figure to self. And everything we just said applies. It may be really obvious. It may be not obvious at all. It may come in a whole different. It comes in a whole different, a uh, whole wide range of flavors, colors, expressions, etc. But what we're talking about here is um, erotic love, because eros and the imaginal go together. We're talking about erotic love in the imaginal, in the imaginal world between imaginal figures and ourselves. <coughs> and eros uh, is uh, has a lot of uh, aspects in common with meta, but it's also, if you like, it's more than meta. There's more to it. It's it's different, and this is what I want to kind of really make sure we're clear about. So most people, perhaps, when they practice metta, loving kindness or compassion, most people use their imagination to some extent. I mean, at least you have some kind of sense of the person to whom you're giving metta. Maybe you use white light, or maybe you see them smiling, or um, you just sense their being in the imagination without a, a, a visual image there. Um, but the use of imagination in meta is not... Uh, it, it's great. It's, it's really valid and okay, and can, for most people it's very, very helpful in whatever ways that works. But that per se, the use of the imagination in meta is not the erotic imaginal. Imagination doesn't equate as imaginal, and meta doesn't equate as eros. And we also gave that example of um, what we were calling in the last retreat an imaginal figure of love, um, and using them in actually in different ways, which we didn't quite uh, tease out in the last retreat, um, one for the sake of cultivating the meta, and the other for the sake of the whole movement into the erotic imaginal, which we didn't kind of unpack so much on the last retreat, uh, though we did point at it and open that possibility. So we talked about, for instance, grandma or the lap of the Buddha, and made the distinction that if grandma is not an erotic object for me, not necessarily a sexual object, but an erotic object in terms of uh, meaning that she is full of dimensionality, I'm, I'm, my interest is aroused, there's more to her, I want to kind of know her and contact her, she's... Um, she has these dimensions to her being that I want to kind of enter and open to. If that is not there, then grandma may be a really v valuable meta figure, uh, in, uh, 
figure uh, for the cultivation of metta, an imagination figure, but she's not imaginal, and that's certainly not erotic there. There's no eros. This is really, really valuable, certainly okay, uh, very helpful, but erotic imaginal is something different in those. Either just the use of the imagination for the sake of metta, or this figure that may express metta to us, but is not uh, full of eros either way, from us to her or from her to us. But there are similarities and overlaps between eros and the Brahmahara, certainly there are. Um, and we can say, as I think I said right uh, near the beginning of this course, that care, to me, care is a part of eros. So that's included. When there's an erotic relationship, there is care there. And I was using love in that sense as care, care for the other's being. So to me, that's actually part of eros. Um, there's other similarities, for example, um, between the Eros and the Brahma Viharas, for example. Um, equanimity is something you may know that we can talk about in two ways, in a way the Buddha kind of implicitly made this distinction. Um, equanimity towards beings. So there it's related to compassion practice. We care for their suffering. We try and do what we can to alleviate the suffering of, of some being. But we also realize, in a way, they need to take responsibility. And there's a limit to how much I can do, sometimes. Uh, there's a limit in complicated relationships, uh, complicated situations and circumstances to what I can do to alleviate their suffering. And recognizing those limits and recognizing that they may need to take responsibility in some way uh, is, a, is a part of what supports the equanimity towards the beings in the context of compassion towards beings. And actually sometimes another person's suffering is, is really up to us. And we, we uh, can, and, uh, can step in there and do something, extend ourselves. Uh, but as well as equanimity um, towards beings, we can have uh, the Buddha. The Buddha talked about equanimity in a way that what he's really referring to is equanimity towards phenomena, pleasant or unpleasant, uh, etc. Et that there is a kind of evenness, uh, not getting so aversive to the unpleasant and rejecting it and trying to get rid of it, caught up in that kind of knee-jerk reaction, and so sort of craving and contracted around seeking seeking out the pleasant or, or seeking to hold on to the pleasant, etc., fear of losing it. So there's a kind of equanimity and evenness, um, uh, an impartiality, if you like, towards phenomena, pleasant, unpleasant, beautiful, ugly, etc. So equanimity um, is... Uh, has ha, is is possible to practice equanimity, have equanimity in relation to beings and in relationship to phenomena. And the same is true of eros, right? Everything we've talked about on this retreat. Uh, there's eros certainly towards a human other. There's eros towards actually anything can be alive for us as an erotic object, if it if it uh, fulfills the um, criteria that we've de- delineated. The, the the relationship with anything it could be this lamp in front of me it could be um, 
this talk, that the ideas could be, uh, you as the listeners, um, could be um, an, an imaginal figure, could be, uh, you know, a tree, anything. Could be a heartache, that there's an erotic relationship with my heartache. It's different than just a meta-relationship with my heartache, right? And heartache has dimensions, has divinity, has meaningfulness, has purpose comes alive in that way through the erotic relationship. But like like equanimity, eros can also be towards beings and towards phenomena. Actual beings, physical beings, imaginal beings, and uh, phenomena, actual phenomena and imaginal phenomena. Uh, and also, and, and maybe some of you will know this, some of you are l- less aware of it, um, but this is also true of metta and compassion. Loving kindness and compassion, they uh, most of us uh, understand those or have been exposed to those as teachings uh, of what we can practice, qualities we can practice in relation and cultivate in relation to beings, to sentient beings. But um, I, I think that really beautiful practice and very powerful in terms of the insights that it can liberate, not just the healing and opening that it can bring experientially, but also the insights into dependent origination, the practices of loving kindness and compassion towards phenomena, directing love towards dharmas, uh, which is less commonly practiced and much less commonly uh, understood in terms of its implications for understanding emptiness and dependent origination. But anyway, there's there's lots of similarities and overlaps um, between um, Eros and the Brahma Viharas. But what about the differ- differentiations between them? And can we um, get clear or clearer about uh, in our differentiation, uh, differentiating between Eros and the Brahma Viharas? So. Eros, we have said, has desire in it. It has this wanting, wanting to connect, wanting to connect more, wanting to contact, wanting to know, uh, to to penetrate, to enter, to open to, etc. Um, It has, in that sense, it has attraction, it has desire and attraction in it. It also is uh, has delight as part of it. It's accompanied by delight, or delight is part of the whole experience of Eros, we have said. Uh, so desire, attraction, delight. Also with Eros, the perception of beauty is an integral feature, uh, a, 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 an inevitable feature of Eros. The perception of beauty and also, I would say, of meaningfulness. This erotic other, this beloved other, um, whether it's an object or a person or whatever, um, a being uh, is, is somehow meaningful to my soul and the eros itself is also meaningful but that is because uh, eros goes with the imagine all these qualities are part of that so desire, attraction, delight, beauty meaningfulness in contrast metta for example attraction is not part of metta Metta does not involve a desire to connect more with, to know more, to penetrate, to open to, etc. Let's be, let's be really clear here. Metta may um, uh, support a realization of interconnectedness, that I, we are already interconnected. 
there is already an uh, interconnection on actually on lots of different levels of being between me and this person I'm um, offering metta to, directing compassion to, etc. So metta may support and open the realization of an interconnectedness that already exists. And similarly, a realization of interconnectedness supports metta to the degree that we realize the depth of our interconnectedness. To that degree is metta made easier and supported. The practice of metta towards this person is made easier and supported by the degree and the depth to which I realize and the fullness to which I realize my our interconnectedness. But that different realizing interconnectedness that's already, so to speak, a existential fact, if you like, or um, is different than uh, a desire to connect more. It's different than than that. You understand? And again, in contrast, meta may um, uh, support, give rise to an an increase in in our perception of the beauty of the other. So if you've done a lot of meta practice, you'll know this. Here's that person, they're just kind of neutral, I don't think much of them, or I, I actually find them, uh, I, I, there's, there's a version to them, I find them um, ugly in some way, or even repulsive, or whatever it is. Um, I don't like them. And as you practice metta, you start to see uh, in different ways, all kinds of different ways, some, some beauty there. Some, uh, and, and, and there might be some delight in their being, in their presence, certainly in the practice of metta, but that's a slightly different thing. So metta may support an increase in the perception of beauty and delight, but uh, these the perception of beauty and the experience of delight are not ascent in the other, are delighting in the other and how they are. These are not essential to metta, almost by definition, because that would make metta conditional. And metta, the whole point of it is it's unconditional. I don't need to find you beautiful. I don't need to perceive you as beautiful. I don't need to delight in your being and presence. It might come out of the metta practice. But the whole point of the unconditionality of metta, that's the goal, the ideal of metta is unconditionality, is that these are not essential, they're not necessary to metta, the perception of beauty uh, of the other and the, and the delight in the other. Yeah, so, so there's contrast here that quite important to just be really clear about and draw out. And we have been saying that eros includes something like what we might call personal love. Um, in other words, better to put um, love for the particulars of this being, of this person, or this thing. Love for the uniqueness and through the uniqueness. Um, and, and that's different, again, than metta. And again, metta is just, it's just, you love them. Why do you love them? Just because they're a sentient being. It's not about loving their particulars. It's not um, love for the particulars. It's just for, in a way, for the universals. Sentient beings suffer. We share suffering. And even if I don't share exactly the same kind of suffering that you do, there's something in common with suffering, with mortality, with um, fragility, illness, vulnerability, emotional vulnerability all that. 
and and the, the compassion is running through those strands of universality just just because you're a sentient being just because I'm a sentient being whereas the eros is for in and through the particulars and the uniqueness and again if we um, uh, th- this is noticeable with images in the imaginal realm. If Sometimes it's immediately noticeable, and sometimes we need to um, perhaps spend longer dwelling uh, with a sensitivity, with an openness, with a, with a receptivity, and a, and a kind of um, fine-tuning tune- or attunement of our attention, of our being, in the imaginal realm, with an imaginal figure, to realize... Ah yes, there is more than meta here. There is this, um, what we're calling a personal love or love for, in and through the particulars and the uniqueness. Yes? So in that story of the retreatant um, who in in her beautiful relationship with the trees and the forest loved them, was in love with them and their particulars and their uniqueness and just felt in in uh, at first felt there was a discrepancy there there's an inequality i'm just loved because i'm one of gaia's children a kind of universality there and then actually realizing just hanging out with the image um, until we realize oh oh yes there's something else here it might feel like something has shifted in the image I, i actually think it's there from the beginning in the imaginal and we need to notice it what I want to say is we need that kind of love as well as we need metta. We need this personal love. We need to love particulars and, and uniquenesses. Um, and we need our particulars, our personhoods, our particular personhoods, our unique personhoods, our particularities and our uniquenesses loved. We need to feel that. Why? Because we have, as I've pointed out before, I would say, we just have, uh, we have, we experience, we sense, we viscerally feel ourselves to be a different kind of self. We have a modernist self now. And that the, the whole self-experience is different. It's more complex. It is more individual. There is more complexity to individuality nowadays. More particularities, more edges, more contradictions, all of that. This is uh, something that modernism... Uh, actually, I was talking with Catherine the day, pointing out it actually started with St. Augustine, um, uh, perhaps. Um, and uh, And then... You know, through centuries, uh, and actually changed Christianity or Christ- the, the relationship with Jesus. Actually, gave right was part of what gave rise to more of the sense of individuality in the modern self, etc. But anyway, at this point in our culture, um, we have we have a certain very complex, very multifaceted um, sense of self of which uniquenesses uniqueness of that self and the personhood and un and the uniquenesses in that self and the particularities are absolutely essential uh, dimensions. We can't just erase them and get rid of them. And someone might say, yes, but that's a construct. And I say, yes, of course it's a construct. Um, but it's also our experience, our visceral gut experience. Um, not all the time, 
because there's there's different practices, different ways of looking that move in and out of that and turn it up and turn it down, etc. Bring out the contrast, dip, you know, fade them through less fabrication, etc. But it is an experience that we will keep coming back to. And we will keep being confronted by it because we've grown up with it, but also because it's just it's in our society. And anyway, if a person says that's a construct, that kind of self is a construct, say yes, but everything is a construct. Show me something that's not a construct. Show me something that's not fabricated. And, you know, we've gone into this. It's like if you point to bare attention or the moment-to-moment process of aggregates, I would just say, look deeper, more practice more practice with the ways of looking that that show that that too is a fabrication. That too can fade. How it gets fabricated is just a level of fabrication. And, thirdly, um, we could see, from everything we've been saying, what we've, we've, we've explored on this retreat, we could see that modernist construction of self as indeed a construction, but a construction emerging individually and culturally from the very process of the soul-making dynamic, from the stretching of the eros psyche logos. A, a, a new kind of self is created or discovered, or if you like, the self is um, expanded, complicated, enriched, widened, deepened, given dimensionality, etc., etc. The modernist self may be, or one way of seeing it, is, is actually as a result of an individual and cultural process of soul-making. And now that, that modernist self is inviting a further level of soul-making through all this, through through the love that it's asking, the erotic love that it's asking for, asking us to open to, to this dimension, not shut it out, and open to what personhood can be and can mean and the divinity of it and all that. It, it's inviting and asking for um, more soul-making. But we cannot erase or ignore this self that we feel. Uh, certainly can't erase it permanently. You, that can go quiet to different degrees beyond the personality and then much deeper than than that even Um, but we can't uh, live in a way that erases that self or ignores it and uh, to try to do that or to think that one has to that would would be um, poverty's mistakes and uh, they would make us poor rather than richer and fuller and freer, they're, they're actually it's strangely kind of constraints. And to try and ignore it, to try and do that, would, would just betray actually a lack of full insight, I believe. So there's this, what we're calling love for, in, through the particulars, the uniquenesses. And what would it be to dwell in that, to open to it? Both um, our love for the imaginal figure in their particularities and their uniqueness, or their the uniqueness and particularities that, that are so, so to speak, part of them, and also their personal love for us and our particularities and our uniqueness. To 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 sit in that, to dwell in it, to abide in it, to feel it, uh, soak in it, absorb it, take it in, um, either from the the gaze of of the imaginal other or from some other communication which may or may not be verbal, it may be tactile, it may be sexual, it may be uh, from light, streaming, all, all kinds of possibilities. But to 
open to and dwell in and, and open to receive the imaginal figure's love for you. Is that um, possible? Um, so much healing is, is uh, available there. To feel loved, to be loved, to know one's love, to recognize that one is loved. In all kinds of ways, in our particularities, and, and with all the sense of dimensionality um, to that love, to that figure, in other words, to the origin of the love. Because the imaginal figure in that case is, is, the, is the source of that love. And to feel like that source itself has mul- mul- uh, is multi-level, multi-dimensional, multi-aspected. And also in ourself, what receives it within us is multidimensional as well. Or it's received at different dimensions of our being, put it that way. And uh, again, as I, as I said before, this, this can be difficult. This kind of opening to um, the, the loving gaze of, of the other, whether it's a human other or an imaginal other, um, can be difficult. Oftentimes, you know, teaching meta practice is interesting because you just see, um, for so many people, it's often harder to receive meta and compassion, to receive love, than to give it. Oftentimes, that's and um, perhaps in the Buddhist time, you would have found that very, very uh, strange. Certainly, I know the Dalai Lama was very surprised um, when he came to the West first and and and, and saw saw that. For a lot of people, not certainly not for everyone, absolutely not for everyone, but it's often harder to um, receive love than to give it. And we talked before how even we we can have in all this a very ambivalent relationship, a very charged relationship with um, being seen. Something in us um, yearns and longs to be seen to be naked, to be um, gathered in another one's gaze, um, to be transparent, not hidden. Um, And also, uh, this can be very, very difficult, very charged, very hard to tolerate sometimes for some people, this being seen. So they end up with a, uh, one ends up with a very ambivalent relationship, something we yearn for and um, fear or run away from or back off from or close ourselves off from turn away from or it might just be uh, it might be the whole of ourselves it might be just places within ourselves uh, parts of us are fine being seen parts of us we're really um, it's really on an edge uh, of ambivalence there for us and <clears throat> there can be um, pain wrapped up in this shame that's causing this ambivalence we're ashamed to show some part we believe we're like this, or we shouldn't be like that, or whatever it is. Um, and, and there can be grief wrapped up in this. So this is, um, you know, uh, relatively common in, in, uh, for us in the modern West. And, and of course, perhaps in other cultures too. Uh, I'm just less familiar with those cultures. And if that is the case, then the question of, okay, uh, what order should we go in? with these kinds of practices? Um, what uh, And how should we pace it? Am I going to... I feel this real ambivalence, so I'm just going to force myself into sort of, you know, tying myself down in the gaze of this um, uh, of this other who's loving me, or the imaginal figure uh, with their erotic gaze, um, or even just their meta, you know? 
Um, so it's a, you know it, it's it's always a question of uh, there isn't a formula for this. You know, everyone needs to proceed in the same order. This will always be easier than that, and you should go this fast exactly. It, of course, it's not going to be like that. As always, these kinds of practices and practice in general, it's asking for sensitivity, for feeling what feels right, changes all the time. We're really um, fluidly responsive to the whole, um, the whole unfolding of practice. But, you know, in time and, and with this responsiveness and maybe with the help of teachers and, and loved ones and friends and um, all of that, um, practicing alone, practicing together, practicing all of that, there can be um, this uh, increasing capacity to uh, expose uh, oneself, if you like, to the, um, to the erotic gaze, to the love of the imaginal um, a figure other and to dwell there yeah and um, when we first raised this uh, I mentioned the possibility of actually you know if there is this ambivalence or this or fe- seeming inability to um, uh, even some people even to give meta to themselves you know so even in a di- whole different practice trying to give meta it's like it might be that there's an imaginal figure um, who, who you can ask and, and talk to and bring this very difficulty to and just see what do they say, what do they do, how do they respond. There is an autonomy here that sometimes that they have, as we keep saying, imaginal figures have an autonomy that can sometimes really surprise us. And the way they express love, and they want to love us, they want to communicate something. And sometimes what they want to communicate is the love. You know this word angel means messenger, communicator. And the angels that come to us, the angels that we open to in the imaginal realm, they want to love us and they want to communicate something. And they have this sometimes uh, surprising um, autonomy and kind of intelligence that we could not have um, kind of engineered or predicted. And just to kind of <laughs> say something uh, a little bit, the cat getting out of the bag, but there's love there anyway. They, their love is there anyway. They love you anyway. So it's not something. Uh, it's going on anyway. In other words, you can try and avoid it, etc. Turn your attention away from it, but it's going on anyway. If you like, at one level. So we can learn about love, and hopefully we do learn about love through and in our human relationships. And hopefully we um, take care and work at those relationships that we really, um, you know, we learn how to love and how to be loved, how to receive love. We learn about love and what it is and what it involves um, through our taking care of and working at and, and hanging in there and working with the difficulties in our human relationships. But also we learn about love um, through, with, and from uh, our imaginal figures, the figures of the imaginal realm that come to us. We can learn a lot about love um, through, with, and from the imaginal figures.
but w- with all this and the distinctions we made before, um, eros, if you like, um, is more than meta. It kind of involves more than meta. So there's, um, you know, whether it's from us to the other, the object, the imaginal object, or the other, the uh, actual other, um, or from the other to ourself. Um, Eros involves more than meta. There's something, it has other aspects, other dimensions. And again, sometimes we can be a little too um, simplistic in the way that we pick up the Dharma or what we take from it, or, and then and then kind of what we neglect to look into and, um, and, and flesh out and bring alive in our life. So very easily we just think, um, well, there is just meta, and it's, far and near enemies, if you know the, 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 the teaching. Um, so there's just metta, loving kindness, and then its far enemy is ill will, and its near enemy is attachment. So these are the kind of categories, and it, it's got to fit somewhere in there. Um, and so if you say, well, yeah, well, I really love my partner or my lover or what, whatever it is, and and um, I say, well, okay, I kind of just admit it's it's meta I definitely met meta plus some attachment and yeah okay it's just attachment but actually is that what's going on I mean not to say there isn't attachment there um, there may well be there often is in the complexity of human relations of course there is but there's also other as we said other delineations that we can draw out that doesn't really capture it does it meta and attachment that's the mixture of my love here the love that flows between us so again, we can we can be a little I don't know what the word is lazy, sloppy, simplistic, oversimplifying, a little a little too quick to close the eyes. But this is not to imply that eros is always better, or we should always strive for an erotic relationship. Uh, that's not not to imply that at all. Um, there's absolutely. Um, a place for meta and the simplicity and the simplifying that it, it brings and involves and for its universality and for its unconditionality absolutely necessary and that's you know, why the Buddha placed uh, such emphasis on it I don't know how um, common that was in the teachings of his time to actually uh, put so much emphasis on the Brahm Viharas um, but so uh, important and skillful to really know those practices and develop them and can't say how much treasure there is in that. So not saying Eros involves more than meta, therefore it's always better that for always try and do that. Not saying that at all. There's really a place and a necessity for meta, compassion uh, and the Brahmaharas, uh, their simplicity, their universality, their unconditionality. But there's differences. Uh, in fact, related to just these factors that we just talked about, simplicity, university, and unconditionality. In relationship with another, um, whether... Uh, um, and actually that other could be an imaginal other, an actual other, or, uh, or the self, in relationship with the self, or in relationship with a phenomenon. Um, the practice of metta, for example, or compassion, um, or equanimity, um, leads to 
progressively, uh, as, as you do it more, its direction is towards fabricating that other less, fabricating the perception of the other less. Again, whether it's self, uh, giving metta to self, whether it's giving metta to uh, directing metta or compassion towards phenomena or equanimity, or uh, equanimity towards phenomena, or towards another. Uh, the brahmaharas actually tend towards a, a, a decrease of the fabrication of the perception of the other, of, of the of certainly the object to whom one is directing the uh, metta or compassion or equanimity or whatever, but then eventually to all things. Um, they simplify the perception uh, of the other as part of that movement, and also the, the uh, because self, other, world, always arises constellations, we said they will also simplify the sense of self. Uh, so the simplification is part of the movement of less fabrication. And the perceptions of oneness uh, that come out of that self and other are really one, where one luminous heart essence of love, or wh- whatever the perception is, the perceptions of oneness, as we've said several times on this retreat, are also, if you like, the various perceptions of oneness, are also, if you like, um, station points on the spectrum of lessening fabrication of the perception of the other and self that happens through the Brahmavahara practice. You understand? So the Brahmavahara practices, um, they they decrease, uh, as you get deeper into them, they decrease the fabrication of the perception of other and also self. Part of that is the simplification of the perception of other and self, and partly also, and, and also world, and partly um, the perceptions of oneness, the sense of oneness uh, that happen there. Are, it's all it's all wrapped up in the movement of less lessening fabrication. In contrast, eros actually fabricates more. It doesn't simplify; adds complexity to the object. Uh, to the beloved other, becomes multifaceted, um, multidimensional, as we've said, this beloved other, whatever it is, whoever they are. Um, And and they may even increase in in the the images they sort of uh, express. So one person, for me, might might sort of hold a whole um, range of images and might manifest to me with different imaginal faces. Um, the, eros, but the movement of eros is an increase in com- complexity, a complexifying, a complicating, as we said, and an increase in the fabrication of other. Yes, um, it uh, eros can uh, go towards melting and union, so to speak, with the other, and we've talked about that in practice, and you've probably experienced that by now. Um, but uh, it will seek after a sort of dip into that union, it will seek to kind of reinstate uh, the, the sense of tunus, the erotic polarity, the erotic dyad there. There will be a return to that um, because of the fertility of that and the necessity of that to the eros. Even when we know the oneness, it's like the, the knowing of the oneness would just be something that's sort of in the background, part of the... Uh, just the the mix of what is known in the erotic tunus, in the erotic coupling, in the erotic uh, tension of tunus there in the dyad. 
what ensues from that particular difference, the difference in the movement towards less and towards more fabrication, if you like, um, what ensues is a difference in also the um, perceptions, the openings, the experiences of um, sacredness and divinity that come out of these two um, directions of practice. Why is that important relative to the Brahmaharas? Because, and again, you'll know this if you've done like a lot of dedicated um, Brahmavihara practice, um, especially metta and compassion. But if if you did that, uh, say, cultivated uh, metta and compassion, let's say on a retreat for some weeks or um, or at home, you know, whatever, um, then. There would be a point, and I think this is an inevitable point, unless something's kind of getting in the way. Um, there would be a point, maybe quite fast, but usually quite gradually, where the metta and the, or the compassion um, begins to feel like I'm not doing it. Actually, I sense it everywhere. I sense it in the air. I sense it in the space. I sense that metta or compassion is a sort of um, uh, I think I've used the words before, is woven into the fabric of the cosmos. There is uh, metta and compassion filling this space, the space of the universe. Um, and when I start to feel that, then I can kind of let that, I feel like the cosmic uh, metta, the cosmic uh, compassion that pervades everywhere, I can start to let that do the work. Oftentimes people having that kind of experience, opening to it, apart from the relief and the beauty and how deeply it touches, it brings um, it brings also a sense of divinity. So they will often start talking in theistic language, even if they've had no inclination to do that before at all. Um, but, as I said, it starts to feel with that, that, ah, oh, it's not me doing, I'm not kind of cranking this wheel of metta and compassion, I'm not holding the other person suffering, if, if that's what I'm trying to do within the compassion practice. I'm not having to respond, it's almost like it's there, it's a little bit effortless, it's like the cosmos is doing it, the divine is doing it, the Buddha nature is, is just doing it, and all I'm doing is kind of opening to letting that happen as it's already happening and recognizing and all I'm doing is really opening and tuning my attention to that and tuning into that kind of wavelength if you like of perception and because it's not doesn't feel at that point like the self is doing it the self is responsible the self is having to work at this compassion as well I'm responsible for this compassion and I'm the one holding the suffering etc this is a huge relief at that point. There's this kind of, ah, oh, wow, phew. Um, and, and with all that, equanimity comes in. The vastness um, gives rise, the automatic sense the, of effortless um, compassion and love um, and holding equanimity and steadiness that are sort of there and perceivable, shot through the cosmos, um, allows the self to, to be much more equanimous in relationship to um, the, compa- the suffering that we're uh, in touch with um, uh, in the compassion practice. And there's, correspondingly, with all that, there's an increase in our capacity to face suffering, to open to suffering. We don't have to run away. The heart is 
you know, in some respects, we could say literally that our heart gets bigger. It's no longer our, my personal, it's the universal heart. It's the universal compassion, it's the divine compassion that the heart is just opening to. Um, so our, our, if you like, our, our capacity to meet suffering, to face it, to hold it, although it doesn't feel so much that we are holding it, is is vastly expanded when we have when we are in touch with that sense. Because it's not me that has to do it, it's not little old me that has to somehow hold this enormous suffering that you might be going through or that's in the world or that we see on the news or that the, the planet is facing. Something much vaster, more powerful um, and we don't have to kind of create and, and work at that. All we have to do is recognize. Now, that kind of divine or cosmic, um, cosmically infused um, uh, love there and compassion, it could be uh, just from normal, standard uh, loving kindness and compassion practice. Um, or it could be uh, coming from the erotic imaginal, and even the sexual imaginal. Yes, um, and I, I would say we can know both those possibilities. So that kind of sense of cosmic, divine um, love and the equanimity that then imbues that love, that, that loving kindness and compassion, coming from either more standard. Uh, Brahma-vihara practices, loving-kindness and compassion, etc., um, without any uh, of the imaginal, without any, uh, certainly any erotic imaginal, and certainly not with any sexual uh, erotic imaginal. Um, that's, that's very possible, and I've just described that, a uh, very sort of normal thing I would expect for people doing the Brahma-vihara practices in the standard way. But we can also know it um, through and with the erotic imaginal. And as I said, even the sexual erotic imaginal. And we can explore both, know both are possible, and explore the differences. And what's part of the differences? Well, they, they both give rise to this divinity, this kind of, they both sacralize, if you like, if that's a verb. They, they, they um, give rise to a, and spread a sense of sacredness. Eros does it because of the Eros psychologus dynamic that we've talked about giving um, a sense of dimensionality and beyondness to, uh, at first, the, er- the erotic uh, beloved, the other. Um, and that's part of what will happen with the eros dynamic as it gets going, if it's not inhibited, as we said, if it's not blocked. And in the sense of dimensionality, in that sense of beyondness, um, and the mystery and the beauty with that, um, there will be, at some point, some kind of sense of the divine or the mystic. I'm going to come back to these words because they're actually hard to define, and rightly so. Um, But in a way, the mystic is, you could say, it's partly, it's just um, the the perception of what doesn't, or in certain directions, the perception of just when does something become mystical, when it's beyond whatever is agreed to be the normal agreed-on perception of what, what something is. Um... I mean, obviously, there's lots of caveats with that, with that, um, but definition. But um, but 
because of the Eurosyche Logos dynamic, the opening up of dimensions, the perception of dimensions, the perception of the sense of beyond, of mystery, um, of beauty, the Logos then expanding the idea of what that thing is, what that other is, and all the soul-making involved. Um, there, there is an inevitable sacralizing that comes with <coughs> through Eros because of uh, the soul-making dynamic that it instigates, ignites, etc., inseminates. Metta and the Brahmaviharas also sacralize, but they sacralize through a, this decrease in fabrication, this lessening of fabrication of perception that they um, that they kind of support or unlock. Um, and, and because of that, they actually there's a kind of limited, if you like, direction of the sacralizing. It's in. It's always going to be in the direction of less fabricating, and uh, and that follows a kind of spectrum. Um, maybe you could say there are infinite gradations on that spectrum. Although it certainly seems, in my experience, that there are, if you like, typical or common sort of. Um, stations along the way, stopping points, plateaus along the way of that spectrum of lessening fabrication. and But the, there's a limited direction. It will always have something about oneness in it, um, some some kind of oneness, and to, to greater or lesser degrees and different kinds of oneness. Always then some sense of universality, often some sense of luminosity as well, but universality and oneness will be characteristic of of the kind of um, narrowing of the direction of the sacralizing. Whereas with Eros, when, when Eros, um, the sense of uh, love and cosmopoetic divinity that comes out with Eros, there's, if you like, there's kind of infinite possible directions of sacralizing there because the Eros picks up on and um, amplifies, ramifies uh, the the personal, the particular, the personal, the characteristic, uh, unique qualities there. It, um, if you like, multiplies or spreads them um, in through the soul-making dynamic, perhaps in cosmopoesis, to discover and create them, discover, create, slash, discover, slash, create them, um, everywhere, throughout the cosmos. So it's infinite in the sense of there's not a limited number of possibilities of of the flavors that can have and the characteristics that can have it doesn't just move along this sort of narrow line deepening into um, oneness and less fabrication etc um, certainly there's depth there but it's much wider in the sense of the number of possibilities being infinite just like to open, apart from getting clear, because I think it is you know, helpful uh, conceptually, um, but, but also open the possibility of practice. If you feel enough, or when you feel enough, trust in, in, in the practicing with Eros and, and the imaginal and the erotic imaginal, um, you may want to explore uh, this um, combination, if you like, or this navigation, but actually combination, mixing of the Eros with the Brahma-Viharas. If and when you feel enough trust in in the practice of the erotic imaginal. Um, And again, I'm really including the sexual erotic imaginal as well. Um, 
Though it might also be that doing this kind of practice and seeing how the erotic imagining, the sexual erotic imagining, can support the Brahmaharas also greatly uh, adds to your trust in the practice of the erotic imaginal. So one possibility is working with imaginal practice, getting a sense of the eros involved there in the practice with, with this imaginal figure, um, and, and all the beauty of that, and the multi-directionality and multi-dimensionality of that. And then when that's there, and, and sometimes that can be very quick, you know, if you're familiar with it, and sometimes it takes time to get used to all those different aspects and qualities and linger in it and feel the beauty there. But, but actually it can be very quick. And then, then one can... Um, uh, navigate either straight into a metta and compassion practice and just uh, kind of let the image go. But more interesting for us is actually to direct it, um, including still the erotic, imaginal, and the eros, and the sense of the eros, and even the image, um, and directing, navigating, if you like, steering in a way that includes the uh, erotic, the eros and the erotic imaginal, um, while opening to the uh, meta and compassion. So it's got a f- it's kind of a fusion, a mixture. So, for example, one can be working with the eros in, in the imaginal practice, and then um, introduce a person that you know is suffering. I mean, of course, it could be your own suffering, but. Um, for instance, introduce a, a, a third person. So there is the self and the er, uh, beloved other, the object of the eros, and then a third person. Um, and you know that they're suffering, and you just introduce that into the constellation. Maybe it has to constellate spatially a certain way. But you can be really creative here. And what's possible, as I said, is the... the um, Erotic divinity, the sense of the divine love that's uh, kind of coming out of uh, being supported by emerging from the erotic image um, can actually be what then spills over and meets the suffering and the suffering person. Uh, so it can become like like water spilling over, like 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 uh, like a uh, like a tide coming in, or, uh, or or light can radiate, or what all kinds of possibilities. Actually, all all kinds of possibilities. You can be very very creative here for the way that the um, divine love that is uh, emanating or being expressed through the erotic image. Um, the way that uh, extends and carries over to include and to meet and encompass and address uh, the suffering other and their suffering. Um, All kinds of possibilities. Again, we can be really surprised, really surprised here. The imaginal has a dimension of creativity which is not our own. And we can also be more deliberate and bring our, uh, do it this way or that way, more deliberate, uh, more intentional steering. So when I first started exploring this this uh, nexus, this meeting point in of eros and the imagine and the uh, Viharas in practice, um, this was really interesting to me because 
typically we would assume um, that eros is in the way that we usually think about it you know it's associated with craving and it's kind of self-interested what can I get for me I'm interested in my pleasure I want to keep this erotic object for me um, I want to hoard the pleasure for myself or my whole being and my orientation is co- contracted um, to the um, uh, around the eros contracted uh, around the other etc and around the self and one sees that actually that's not the case interesting again because eros tends to open uh, open up uh, in, in all, all dimensions you know, energy body uh, etc we've talked about before so uh, this is this was much more possible than I had anticipated. I mean, I thought actually that it would work, but it's it was really much easier than I anticipated. Also, what was easier was that the the fact that we can actually hold two very different images simultaneously. So there's this image of uh, the. Uh, beloved other and whatever eros is happening uh, communicating flowing between us in that image or <clears throat> or maybe not even between us it could be you know uh, a couple an, an imaginal couple that we are witnessing and outside of you know we've talked about all this before but then we can have a third image of this su- suffering person so there's the erotic um, other and there's uh, the, the suffering person in the self or another you know um, and this possibility to hold sort of um, a kind of network of images, if you like, or certainly more than one one image or two images at the same time. And also that because we tend to think, especially with meta, of it being something very sort of tender and gentle and soft, and that's the, the sort of direction of the meta practice as it evolves, it gets more subtle, more gentle, um, also kind of uh, less less tempestuous, less if it's compassionate actually gets less tearful, gets more more steady, more quiet, um, more subtle and more even. Um, that's part of the movement towards less fabrication. It has more equanimity in it as well. Um, but what was also quite interesting to me was that the whole spectrum of um, erotic expression and erotic kind of character uh, was uh, available and and valuable and uh, translatable, if you like, um, to the to the to the character of the Brahmaviharas that that came with it. So, for example, the the carnal and the voracious uh, eros uh, and and those kind of images that I've uh, described on occasion in this course and. <clears throat> perhaps other courses, I can't remember, but if, we, if you like what we might call the demonically divine, um, that was actually, uh, uh, lent itself very well, surprisingly, perhaps, to the, uh, to the compassion, um, without having to be dimmed or uh, translated into something tender and sweet and gentle and, and not sexual. Um, but of course, also that the eros being very, very subtle, not necessarily uh, sexual at all, and perhaps holding hands or or not even that, just a kind of um, eros that's not physical. Um, uh, 
that that's just very sweet, very gentle, very calm, very tender, um, that too, uh, the eros there can can translate and give character to the kind of brahmavihara that came out of with it, came came out of it. Uh, so if it was, for instance, um, you know, a fierce eroticism uh, in 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 the image, um, that may, for instance, give rise to the kind of quality, or in the, or the kind of cosmopoetic divinity that's manifesting uh, love and compassion, uh, um, like a protector deity might might be a protector deity that it gives rise to. And that kind of quality, uh, mentioned that, um, and even uh, you know these images where one is eating or feasting on the flesh and bones of the erotic beloved, e- even that can transfer very directly uh, to uh, to the suffering other. So that strangely, eating them and feasting on them and uh, can be can seem to express the compassion, can address this, seem to address, express the compassion and address the suffering. Uh, licking them ferociously. Strangely, well, you'd usually think eating, eating a person doesn't seem a very compassionate thing to do, <laughs> feasting on them, but actually it can be, in the imagination, full of compassion, can be. Um, and of course, uh, tenderness can uh, a tender eros will, as I said, express in a uh, can express in a in a tender compassion. For instance, Catherine was uh, telling me of um, something she saw years ago in Sarnath in India. And she was on retreat there, and a uh, she saw a dog that um, I don't know what happened. Maybe maybe someone had cut the dog's throat um, I don't know what she doesn't know what was going on there I didn't know what what had happened exactly but the other dogs either in the litter or in I don't know if they were biologically related but the other dogs were just licking the wound over and over and over and just gathering around and licking and licking and licking this wound and um, and it healed the wound I think it took some days but it healed the wound she was just so struck by by this sort of um, this way of healing through licking, and and the sort of every, all the other little dogs were there licking this um, wound that pro- probably would have caused the death of this um, of this injured dog, um, and and so similarly there can be this kind of erotic licking uh, in the erotic Im- image, and that transfers to um, a kind of very tender. Licking uh, of 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 the suffering heart of the suffering person. It's all kinds of possibilities, or it may be here's the erotic image, and the the the, the erotic action itself doesn't transfer, but it more some light emanates. Um, for example, so it's not it's not something like a licking, um, but it could be just light emanates perhaps from um, uh, an area of the body. Um, or a body part or an organ that's been involved in the image that's kind of central to the image or from the action from let's say the the licking or the feasting uh, it's not the feasting per se as a light that emanates from the feasting that has that quality of uh, that quality of eros that character and also that compassion in it 
or it might be a particular emotional quality that's that's uh, central to the image. So we've talked about how devotion can be part of um, an imaginal <coughs> relationship, and it might be that sense of devotion that's there, uh, characteristic of the image that then um, gets cosmopoetically amplified and spread, and that becomes characteristic. Devotion becomes part of the quality of compassion that, that, that then is um, washing over and washing through the suffering being. And there's all kinds, of, you know, as I said, there's, there's actually infinite possibilities here. The light can be like a direct beam to the suffering person, or can suffuse in all directions. Maybe there's not a light. All kinds of possibilities. But also, as, as, as I was exploring this, and I think you will, you will find as well, and people have reported to me um, quite a few times with, with this, to their surprise usually, bliss arises. Uh, and it's not just a sexual bliss, it's, it's rapture, it's piti, it's sukha, and samadhi comes as possible. And they're so surprised. So I thought this was supposed to be a hindrance, a, a distraction, etc. But bliss and samadhi come out of the erotic imaginal when it's uh, either on its own, as we've talked about, or when it's put in combination with the Brahma-viharas. And, again, and perhaps surprisingly, um, a natural effortless equanimity can come um, with with the uh, erotic imaginal when it's combined with the Brahma-viharas. So natural equanimity in relationship, let's say, to the suffering person, which is necessary for compassion practice. Anyone doing um, sustained compassion practice very quickly realizes the need for equanimity there. As the heart opens and confronting suffering, opening to the, the pain in the world. And so, because partly of the cosmopoiesis and what we talked about before and the sense of it's not the self doing it. There's a sense of the divinity doing it, or the other, dim- the source being in the other dimension. Because of that, there's a kind of natural recognition and sense of equanimity that pervades and supports the compassion. So I really want to <coughs> just draw attention to these possibilities and encourage you, when you feel ready, to explore them, to experiment in practice, to play and see what's possible. And we could ask, well, well why bother? Um, why, why not just do metta and compassion in the standard ways? And yeah, of course, um, uh, I'm not saying to replace them at all. Um, it may be, for some people at certain times, it may be that because there's so much libido um, involved, so much energy uh, available to us when Eros is alive in us at that time, that actually that kind of gives a whole other level of energy to the loving-kindness or compassion um, or uh, mudita practice when it's uh, allowed to infuse those, those Brahma-Vihara practices. It just, there's a whole kind of other level of energy that becomes kind of immediately available if we can uh, join them and make the navigation possible. Um, but also just to know, I suppose, uh, that, again, that sexual images, sexual energy, eros, does not have to be a distraction. And if one is intent 
so say on Brahm Vihara practice and it feels like oh the eros is coming in the sexual desire is coming in the energy, sexual energy and images are coming in and that's a distraction from my meta practice or whatever it is actually it doesn't need to be regarded as a distraction you can include it in, in very creative ways that actually give a whole other depth and texture and uh, range of possibilities to the Brahma Vihara practice so just to know that's possible but actually, for me, just it, it, it's something in just knowing that it's possible that's opening up um, our views and our understandings and our conceptual framework and, and our exploration. And this, to me, is, is really important. Really, really important. Um, it's not that doing this is just for the sake of the Brahma Viharas, because then you might as well ask, um, well, why not just, why do we have to do them with the erotic imaginings? Like, it's more complicated, you've got more stuff to learn, etc. Fair enough. If my goal is just the cultivation of the Brahma Viharas, if that's the purpose of my practice, um, certainly to me, in, in this wider way of saying, what is practice? Where are we going? What are the possibilities? What do I want involved integrated into my sense of, of, of practice, of life, into, integrated into my understanding, if it's more than just, just the cultivation of the Brahmaharas, um, then, then this integrating uh, and including and experimenting with Eros and the imaginal and the ways they may interface and contribute to and flow into and open up directions and possibilities with the Brahmaharas, um, that that's a necessity there, and there's there's a there's a point there beyond just the opening up of the Brahmaharas, right? Soul making. The uh, for me, what's so important that the opening, the increasing, the adding to our sense of sacredness, our senses plural of sacredness, the pluralizing of our senses of sacredness, the giving depth, breadth range to the sense the senses of sacredness the experience of sacredness the experiences of sacredness the expansion of all that to me that's um, one of the main reasons for all of this and all these teachings and uh, so I I you know offer this as an opening as a possibility, as something you may want to practice with and experiment with, and also as an avenue for further investigation. You can find out uh, things here for yourself. You can add to the research, if we borrow that fantasy. Um, all kinds of things possible. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.